Welcome to Fintech Insider Focus in association with Visa. Our once insular world of financial services is now a global phenomenon, and there are people everywhere opening up new markets and discovering new challenges like never before. In this strand of Fintech Insider, we take a burning question from financial services across the globe and put it under the microscope with explainers, expert panels, and in-depth interviews, all to bring the global community into focus. See what we did there. This month, the question we're posting is, will great user experience keep European fintechs ahead of their competitors? Now, there's so much wrapped into that question, so let me dive in a little bit. There's a lot to unwrap and the letters just UX for, for starters. The Interaction Design Foundation defines user experience as the process design teams use to create products that provide meaningful and relevant experiences to users. Now, this isn't just about a font or a drop-down menu. It's about much, much more than that. It's the entire process of requiring and integrating a product, including aspects of branding, design, usability, and, and function. After the global banking crisis in 2008, there were lots of digitally savvy people let go from big banking institutions, packed with ideas about how to improve them, and have lived the negative experiences of them not being done as well. European challenger banks like Monzo, Starling, Revolut, and Wise were all born out of this industry shakeup, and were all making waves prioritizing UX. No longer was logging into your bank account online like breaking into Fort Knox. It was simple, effortless, and extremely popular. But now that we're more than a decade on from that initial wave of innovation, isn't it time that the big banking players caught up? Can they buy their way to top-class UX? And if it's not the big banks, then how about big tech players who are muscling their ways into financial services space with sleek design that they brought from maybe the original iPod or even the AirPods in that sense as well? The competition is fundamentally catching up, and the competition for the market more broadly is really heating up. We'll get into this and much, much more after a quick word from our sponsors at Visa. Visa's FinTech Fast Track program is streamlining the onboarding process for FinTechs, enabling them to gain access to Visa's powerful capabilities and network. Visa and their enablement partners help FinTechs launch and scale cards, virtual credentials, and disbursement programs. To learn more, visit partner.visa.com. Welcome back to Fintech Insider Focus. We want to take the conversation a little bit wider. So we put together a panel of experts to really dig into the question, will great UX keep European fintechs ahead of the competitors? First off, we have my Fintech Insider Focus co-host for this month's episodes, Emma Kerr, who is the SVP of Strategic Partnerships Europe over at Visa. Hey, Emma, how's it going? Great to have you on the show. Great to be here, David. Thanks. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your role at Visa. What are you up to? Sure. So my team oversees three of our most critical stakeholder sets at Visa. First is big tech. These are kind of the global marketplaces that you know and love, Amazon, Apple, Google. Second is fintech, specifically across some of the key segments like crypto. And the third is really an issue or processing set of clients, which is not really well known to a lot of, you know, laymen. But they are some of the be you know the best enablers of getting fintechs into the payment system and able to to use cards and digital payments wherever you may be. Very very cool, lovely broad role. Like uh, that must be a very big 
sort of uh, card you've got to hand out with all of that on. But it's uh, it's a great, great role. Lots of fun times. Um, we were also joined by Axel Caitlin, who is the CEO over at Spendesk. Uh, Axel, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I mean, I think people should know who you are, but like, if people don't haven't heard of Spendesk, what does Spendesk do? Sure, and just one one small small detail. I'm the CEO of the f- uh, financial institution that that uh, Spendesk holds, which is Spendesk Financial Services. And um, so Spendesk is a spend management platform. We offer uh, card issuance and uh, and payments for any type of spend except payroll spend, which we don't touch. Uh, but any spend that can be done uh, in a company, we handle it in a in a SaaS format. Fantastic. I always love to give people a promotion there. So like uh, <laughs> if, I've, if I've just uh, annoyed your boss by giving it, like you their job title, then I do apologize on that one. But uh, uh, And last but by no means least, we have Vasily Starostenko, who is the head of product over at Revolut. Welcome to the show. Um, again, everybody should know who Revolut are by this point, I imagine, given a global audience still. But what's a Revolut when you're at home? Uh, thanks for such a great introduction. I, I'm not going to tell you about the company a lot. I'm going to assume that most people know about it, but roughly uh, and briefly, it's a um, digital bank. It's a digital financial services company, to be more precisely, because we do more than a banking. Uh, and the vision for the company is, again, to build a super app and to have all stop shop for all kinds of financial services, whether you need to buy a stock, whether you want to make a card payment, or maybe you want to make a utility payment of any kind. My role in the company is uh, leading a team or if you will, a team of teams uh, that exists to deliver the absolute best customer experience. And the topic of this podcast is uh, user experience UX. I want to, again, specifically differentiate CX customer experience is a very similar term adjacent to UX, but slightly broader one that includes digital experience, physical experience, regulatory experience, all kinds of uh, customer experiences. Uh, And three specific things that, again, those teams are driving. One is all sorts of questions people have on any topic, how to use products, uh, what can I do, I'm having a bad day, like it can be anything that comes from customers. Second is more specifically experiences which um, put your financial well-being at risk. Someone is about to steal your money, chargeback is needed, um, some questionable scam offer is being sent to you. And then the last but not least is a set of internal tools. Uh, You know that banks and financial services companies need robust and functional set of uh, uh, back office systems to be used by internal employees, right, to help customers. So those are the things that um, teams that uh, I run are overseeing uh, to ultimately deliver the absolute best customer experience. Very good, very good. Another busy role, like you three. Like uh, I don't know, don't know how you've got any uh, hours left in the day to do podcasts. But uh, uh, all right, just before we get into the the show then uh, and dive in a little bit further, just a quick reminder for all of the listeners: uh, the views and opinions on our panel are their own and don't necessarily reflect that of their companies. They might do, but they'll have to say that specifically if they want to. Uh, and don't take anything that you hear as tax, financial, or legal advice. Uh, probably do your own research. Should be very sensible. Talk to somebody far smarter than me. To, to get those things. Uh, and with that note, we probably want to get into the show. Uh, I mean, Emma, if we start with you, uh, what is Visa's perspective on UX? As you heard from Vasily, the you know, UX, CX, product, like there's a, a wealth of terms kind of around this space, isn't there? But, but what's your perspective on UX, specifically when we talk about financial services? Absolutely. So Visa's in a bit of a, a unique position in the sense of it's a, it's a B2B company, but with a consumer brand. So our challenge has always been, like a lot of B2B companies, how do you have influence over that user experience when you don't actually own it or control it? 
and I think over the last several years, the company has been through a huge transition of not starting with feasibility and viability, but you know, ensuring that there is desirability from a consumer standpoint. And so because we operate in that B2B space, we use a lot of co-creation and human-centered design with clients to co, you know, co-create something that consumers hopefully want. And we do that using, you know, being very informed by data. So just as an example, in the buy now, pay later space, when we've co-designed with partners, we find that consumers are often confused by interest rates when they're presented at the checkout. But their likelihood of accepting a credit product at the point of sale increases by about 25% when presented with a flat rate. They enjoy the certainty uh, and kind of the clarity around that. And so that's kind of one of the nuggets of, of insights that we then take to work with our partners to ensure that that kind of best UX gets embedded, you know, across the ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? And, and obviously, I mean, uh, I mean, this podcast called Fintech Insider, like fintech was born as a a frustration of the status quo. I mean, vastly, I mean, coming to you from a, a Revolut standpoint, I know, you know, the conversations we've had with Nikolai before, but equally, I mean, you know, Tom at Monzo and Anne at Starlet, you know, the the boom of, of fintech, the beginning of that was very much out of, you know, really disappointment with the status quo and therefore, you know, a need to really sort of move things forward. So, so do you think, do you think fintech, particularly in that sort of post 2008 world feels like a long time ago now, doesn't it? It's aging us all dramatically, but uh, do you, do you think the fintech hold on better UX was, was really a, a thing that, that, that they could really own? Was that the differentiator, do you think? So I do, I do definitely do believe that second time uh, the companies are approaching the same set of problems uh, better, right? We've seen the similar situation, I would say, in a dot com, uh, in a dot com boom uh, and bust back in two thousands as well, right? Where the set of problems is kind of not new that we're dealing with today, right? People need uh, groceries delivered, they need safe and uh, inexpensive rent, they need money to be managed, etc. But the approach and the quality of experiences that you build. Uh, is what is changing, right? And um, I would say back in 2000s and uh, pre-2008, uh, there was often a naive approach. Often this approach is characterized by build it and they will come just as long as you do the right thing, things just going to magically work out. And then after the initial bust and kind of uh, sobering up, I would say the second attempt is usually characterized by being a lot more practical and keeping yourself grounded to the customer, actual customer experience, actual customer needs, and just not saying that, hey, we're going to build it as long as it's more awesome than the awful experience that you had historically, things are gonna, just going to magically go right. Well, that's a mandatory and important factor, but unfortunately, it's not enough. So to make it uh, closer to what's enough is you have to listen to what the customers are saying. You have to listen to what the government is saying again about the future, about the current the regulators. Like It's a lot more multifaceted. Uh, approach with a lot more complexity. And if you let me again, the last bit, like at least the way I define customer experience, uh, which is a very loaded term and very hard to manage, right? If, and you cannot manage things yet, you, you do not define appropriately. So three key pillars I define for myself and for my teams is one is delightful. So, and, and that's stable stakes. People will not use financial services apps, especially from challenging companies when they're big banks, unless those experiences are delightful, right? The delightfulness is just a table stakes. It's your foot in the door, if you will. Again, absolute must, but uh, not enough. Second one, um, and don't think second is less important than the first, but second one is clarity and precision. 
Um, and what I mean by that is money is a different experience. Managing money is different experience than, again, managing your free time, for example, right? If you go to YouTube and you start randomly tapping on different videos, okay, maybe you're not going to enjoy it the most, but nothing bad is going to happen. If you do the same in your financial services app, lots of bad things could possibly happen, right? So the clarity and precision is an absolute must uh, from the customer experience standpoint. Clarity is everything we say is clear to you. Precision is everything you do is what you intended to do. And in fact, is what's best for you. In some cases, you intend to do bad things, such as uh, being subject to scam. Um, yes, and the very last but not least is efficiency. So it needs to be efficient because again, as I compared it with YouTube and entertainment apps, people do not open digital uh, banks and digital financial services apps to have fun. It's painful to manage money. We should understand that, that people just want out. They just want to pay the bill and leave. They just want to check the card number and leave. They, they don't uh, leave to enjoy financial services apps, right? There are different sets of apps. So we leave and breathe, like building absolute efficient experiences subject to that they're delightful and that they are uh, precise and clear. So that's my longer answer to your short question. So I, I could not more strongly agree with that last point. And I say this all the time. Like anybody listening to this podcast, you're weird. Like you love financial services <laughs> so much. You're listening to a podcast about it. Most normal people don't care. Like they don't care about this stuff. It is a, to your point, Vasily, it's a, it's a pain point they're trying to solve. Nobody wakes up and goes, I want to do some more payments or is like, I really want to transfer some money. Like you're solving a real need for them in their life. And actually to your point, if you can make it as painless as possible and aim for delight, then actually that's a, a very different thing. I feel like we should add to the beginning of the podcast, the caveat, don't just open up your mobile banking and bang, bang buttons as well. Like that was a, it's another good ad, just in case anybody was thinking about doing it. It, don't do it. It doesn't lead to a good outcome. But uh, I mean, Axel, maybe coming to you on, on that one as well. I mean, is is fintech defined by better experiences? Is that a, is that a thing you see almost like as a table stakes? Because Vasily's right, you know, build it and they will come doesn't really work. But But actually, you've got to have something better than the status quo. You've got to have something uh, as, a, as an increase uh, value to the customers to, to pull them towards you, right? Yeah, uh, and I would say, um, I mean, when when startup started uh, looking at like, looking at financial services, which was probably, as you said, just after the big crisis, and I, I also wanted to mention, I also think that one of the reasons why European uh, startups were uh, quite advanced, and 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 we see a lot of uh, a lot of European fintechs, is we have to recognize that the European Union has been quite bold with the, the first directive that they launched where they opened this uh, payment institution and uh, e-money institution uh, statuses to break the monopoly of the banks and, 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 and create some, some level of competition. So I think desperation from the customers and the open door from the European Union on uh, innovation and, and getting the startup ecosystem into that industry was really what triggered and, and, and I would say when you're an incumbent, especially when you're a bank, and it's very, very expensive to move, it's very expensive to innovate, it's very expensive to uh, because you have quite old systems and you don't have any external factor that triggers any change. And you also have, we are, I mean, 
also something that was uh, I, I've worked a, a few years in, in in traditional banks, so I've seen that from the inside. And 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 because they also have branches and they have offices, so digital was not the default, was not the main investment um, that they they wanted to make until uh, startups and the digital industry came in uh, through the startup that were created in in the early 2010. And on, honestly, that that indeed created a lot of increase in the UX and, and created a, a, a new industry, which, which the fintechs are all about. I mean, it started with B2C. We are the, somehow the second phase because the B2B part was, was somehow an, a, a follower because people got used to really good UX in their personal life. And, and it was a natural transition to include this improved UX when they manage money at work. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that, and and it's it's weird, isn't it? How frequently we all say regulation so critical to you know innovation, but I mean, can you imagine saying that in two thousand and six? You people would have just laughed you out the room. But absolutely, it is a an absolute you know cornerstone of why we're all here and why organisations like Revolut or Monzo or Starling or Vera or whoever like are being able to do what they do. So, I, I mean, Emma, maybe coming back to you, I mean, do you think then that that great UX in 2023 is is kind of what keeps fintech ahead of the game in that sense because because that's an interesting sort of point in itself isn't it where financial services is not an island the standards are being set by other industries really heavily but is a, a fintech maybe more capable of keeping up with the curve than more traditional players I think without a doubt, when you don't have legacy tech stacks, when you don't have when you don't have teams of people that you would have to otherwise fire to to make something else happen in, in another part of the, the company, the trade-offs that a that a fintech has to make are much, much lower uh, to kind of have that next advancement. Uh, and so I very much think that because they built on leaner, leaner tech stacks that are, you know more consolidated so you can make it one change and push it out to everybody versus what I think has happened in the banking industry where you have a lot of acquisitions over time and all those integrations take time. Uh, the fintechs will have, you know, continue to have a bit of a, a cutting edge or a competitive advantage in this regard. That said, JP Morgan is the fastest growing app in Europe today. Banks have woken up to the, to the fact that they need good UX to compete. It's a it's it's table stakes now, uh, and so you know it, I I look actually more at like the technology trends that have actually enabled fintech. So we got kind of all forget that the iPhone only was released in two thousand and eight, relatively recent, and kind of the the rise of the fintechs have used that as a way of having you know a PC in everybody's pocket and everybody can access their bank via that phone at all times. And what I'm going to be really curious to see as we go forward is how are things like ChatGBT and AI and ML really, you know, what is the net, what is the next technology platform that creates differentiation uh, for for fintechs and banks alike as some of those lines get blurred? And I think the other thing that we're realizing, you know, we're seeing in the in the marketplace is you had all these neo banks start up a couple of years ago. Some like Revolut have, you know, sped past the barrier, you know, have done phenomenally well. You've got a whole host of others that are, are growing, but not maybe at, at the same pace. Um, there may be more niche players. And then you have a lot of others that, you know, probably during this next credit cycle might not survive. 
but that neobank area is, is pretty saturated. That said, where we see a lot of growth is in embedded finance. And so I think there's going to be all these, these new types of fintechs that spring up, not necessarily in your traditional banking, but within, you know, kind of financial touch points across, you know, a consumer's life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, pre, pre-2008, pre you know, the disruption in payments was still there, wasn't it? And actually, uh, ma'am, I'm really feeling old now. The, uh, you know, t- so 2006, 2005, we were seeing like real disruption in the payments landscape. Um, but as you say, the regulatory climate then meant actually it could be everywhere. I, I mean, I, I would argue, if I'm honest with you, uh, I mean, if you look at the barrier of entry, it's always the complexity of the place in which you're entering it. The, you know, the, the beachhead has to be difficult enough to create some, uh, you know, uniqueness, but actually beneficial enough to the customer that actually it generates a reason to to be with you. Um, I mean, if you if you talk to any of the, you know, the early founders of any of the the, the challenger banks, retail banking's pretty straightforward, right? Uh, balance and a card and a, you know, it's a lot easier now than it was then, don't get me wrong, for Anne Bowden banging on her desk saying, you don't know how to, hard it is to get a license and whatever. But but actually, you know, the beachhead was relatively straightforward. I think the slices of disruption that we're seeing, I mean, you know, Vasily, you sort of touched on this a little bit earlier on. I'm not really sure how to describe Revolut now because you guys do so many things with insurance and booking and travel. You know, you're not really a you're fun. You're in financial services, but you do so much broader than that, don't you? So, I, I mean, is that a? I always say, and, and you know, going slightly off topic here, I always say, no bank three hundred years ago started with all of the complexity and all of the products and all of the things that they do. You know, how much is what the success of players like like you, uh, uh, Revolut, down to? Doing something so well, you get the opportunity to solve other problems for customers, and more problems for customers, and more problems for customers, and then, and then actually, you know, you're talking about super app territory and, and everything that goes with that. So, I mean, it's a it's an episode of uh, doing something so well, you get the opportunity to do something else, isn't it? It's it's a good point, and I still have a lot to think about to well define the company and what we do to appropriately also motivate the teams and also even to hire the right people because uh, that's part of leadership that you should be very very clear back to clarity and precision in defining what you're doing, but also not limit yourself, not to put yourself in the box because um, once you do it, it's really hard to say then what why we're going to be doing something else, right? You just defined us as I don't know credit card company. So to me, the part of definition and part of magic why I believe the company is growing and is successful and I'll knock on wood uh, because it still takes a lot of um, like hard work to continue on the same path. So part of it is we define ourselves and we define our success, success through customer experience, right? That's, uh, it can sound like not a big deal, but in fact, it is a big deal. And I'm going to make um, a comparison to more traditional banks to show why it's not true. So the way we define ourselves is, again, we're a one-stop shop for anything you could possibly need to do with your money, right? Money is the same. You need it in your life. It would be a better life if we didn't need it, but we do need it. There is lots of things you need to possibly do with money, right? You need to get your paychecks. You need to invest it. You need to spend it. You need to send it, like infinite number of things. You need to protect it with insurance. So as long as it's being done to your money, we are in that game, right? It's very simple. And it's defined from the customer experience angle. Now let's look at more traditional banks, or at least how I understand banks and how they launch their products. 
banks, historically, banks have started with just loans, right? Like uh, back in the medieval Europe, I believe, or maybe even earlier, I don't know about ancient Greece, but uh, some people had more money than the others, right? As soon as money was born, then people figured out, well, I have money, I can give it to you, and then you'll give me more money, right? So so the, the, the trigger for the like birth of banks has never been that, oh, let, let's help those people. It was, hey, let's let's go make money, loans, make a lot of money, right? So credit cards are insanely successful products. There is lots of banks which just do credit cards, right? They, they just get so much money from credit cards, they don't even think about other things. Why do I need to offer stocks, mutual funds, like, I don't know, all kinds of plastic cards? Like, I, I have enough in credit cards. That's the best thing on earth. And those are the two different approaches to, uh, again, building a company and building customer experience. Arguably, the first one is profoundly better in the long term if you do it right. Right. If you do it right, that's an important piece, because if you build a much, much better customer experience, ultimately, you'll be able to compete for a lot more customers, for a lot bigger opportunities and to go for Apple sized valuations, right, to get into the trillions uh, and hundreds of billions. You have to be that company that uh, IA clearly understands the customer experience, B delivers them. And the problem I see with today's banks. Part is, uh, historically, they've been born to make money for shareholders, right? I, I'm unaware of banks that have been born with this thesis that customer experience needs to be elevated, improved, and things like this. And once this happens, vast majority of big banks are, in fact, quite old, right? Like They have not been born yesterday. Many of them are more than 100 years old, and they kind of have to pay attention to their reputation and brand equity. So they already have lots of what they see as assets, but I see this as a big liability. That's a big problem. If you could just throw it away and start uh, from scratch, arguably it could be better for them, but they pay respect to this long history we've been doing loans for 200 years. Like we're we're very respectable financial institution in this area. And that's, I see it as a big problem because uh, that's not what makes you successful. And that's, I'm thankful for this being the, uh, the place for new companies to say, and we really do not have those hundreds of years history. And we're really thankful for that. And we're just gonna do what's right for you in 2023. We do not care about what was right for you in 1723, for example, or 15. <laughs> 1723, I'm still paying off that loan. Yeah, it's uh, it's yeah. Um, it, it's a difficult one, though. I mean, because actually, I mean, the word legacy, you know, has very different connotations, doesn't it? You know, actually, a 300-year-old organization, the legacy of serving customers for a really long period of time. But to your point, it has the, the context of... Uh, of deeply held belief systems around financial instruments and how they're constructed and and what their place is in a business. I think it comes back a little bit to what you said, Vasily, about, I mean, we could we could almost spend an hour just defining what what CX, what UX really means, because I think in a uh, in a a challenger type organization, I think the way I'm hearing you define it is that it's it's all encompassing. It is a it's what you do for customers, like. And that's a lot of stuff, right? Uh, but rather than actually the people who put, you know, boxes into wireframes and design up screens, you know, like it's a fundamentally different thing. And that challenges not only the UI design or the experience that you deliver from the, you know, the button noise or whatever. You know, I mean, it's like it's fundamentally like how are you serving customers end to end? And that's a that's a really big thing, isn't it? You know, but I, I do think all of that and, uh, you know, 11FS were big believers in jobs to be done. Like we're a massive kind of believer in figuring out what people are really doing rather than just what they're doing with your product. And actually, if you really look at the market and really look at what the problems are, then you solve them in fundamentally different ways. And I, I do agree with you, Vasi. I think a biggest inhibitor predominantly for 
the way things could be is the way that they're done, particularly in you know big big banking organizations. But do, uh, you know, you touch a little bit on on Apple there, and it, it'll be sort of a I'll be interested to get your views on. You know, obviously this week everybody's getting excited because like Apple are doing this and da 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 da. But actually, in the the landscape of financial services, when we had you know we had the the challenger brands, the fintech brands establishing better experiences, and, and to your point, Emma, earlier on, establishing the tech capability to continually evolve those experiences and continually deliver them. But actually, we've got now, you know, Apple ain't bad at user experience. You know what I mean? They're not bad at this stuff. So, so like, is the competitive landscape with what financial services, good experiences looks like, like fundamentally shifting in that space? And I mean, Emma, maybe coming to you on that one, because I mean, that feels like a, I know in the UK market, we've seen a, a reset on what good NPS actually looks like in the market, but we're seeing that globally as well, right? Yeah. I mean, the standard is constantly being raised. Uh, and, and it's in part because we've got more data available to us to understand what do consumers preference. Even, you know, Basley, I think you had a, a, great, a great line before, which was, we want to do what's right for the consumers, even if they don't know it, <laughs> right? D- data is increasingly telling us what consumers are unaware of or not consciously aware of. Uh, and so I think that as Apple and these other big tech players sit on a whole treasure trove of data. They're going to continually improve and use that data to improve what they provide, the experience, the holistic experience that they provide to their consumers. Uh, And I think it's incumbent on, you know, fintechs, every company to think, okay, how do I use my data in in a more intentional manner to create, you know, uh, delightfulness? to use another vastly term, to create delightfulness for my consumer, obviously with the underlying value. And I think folks are going to have to think about, you know, how do they stay true to their core um, so they they don't head into a, a competition that is um, tough tough to win with with big, big players like an Apple. 100%. A- Axel, what do you think on that one? I mean, the the competitive landscape is is shifting, isn't it? You know, the, the players in the market are are altering, aren't they? And that's that dynamic is is interesting. I mean, even that even back to like more traditional views on on manufacturing and distribution, then, you know, such big competitors have a, a really interesting distribution advantage, don't they? Yeah, completely. And 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 that's that's definitely also something I mean, having been quite involved in the in the deployment of Apple Pay uh, a few years back, uh, I can tell you that the banks are way more afraid of uh, Apple and Google and uh, and and the, and the, the real big digital giants than they are from about about us. Uh because they know that these brands own the customer in a, in a way that uh I mean, in their daily life. I mean, if you if you Apple, you own people's life in. I mean, you, you have people's life in your phone. So it's uh, it's definitely a way bigger threat for for the banks uh, than we are. Uh, is it? Does that mean that um, they will? I, I'm 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 just wondering how much regulated these big entities want to be. And and uh, especially, Emma was talking about data. Was talking about all of that. I mean, there's a fine line uh, that they might not want to cross 
being too close to the regulators we have to deal with on the day to day, which are not really uh, the most friendly, uh, <laughs> the most friendly regulators, and and that could potentially somehow impair their um, the way they innovate and change the the, the way they have to behave, um, and and that that's potentially uh, a line that they are that are really looking at not crossing. Yeah, you can see people are, are really interested in the revenue and the profitability, not so much in all the cost of doing it. And that's a, that's an interesting challenge, isn't it? Uh, very much like um, sort of a swordfish dipping in and out of the ball of fish. They're in and out before they regulate it in that sense, aren't they? But uh, I, I mean, Vasily, just coming back to you a little bit on the the process piece, you know, we, we, good UX and good customer experience more broadly is not a point in time. You know, this isn't a fixed thing. To your point earlier on, you know, the conditions that we operate in today, the needs of customers are fundamentally different. You know, cost of living crisis, the post-COVID, you know, employment, uh, unemployment, uh, you know, soaring in terms of the changes that we're seeing. I mean, the complexity of UX in a major part is really like being able to listen to the problems that customers are are having and and fundamentally having the ability to actually do anything about it in terms of actually having a product capability to to deliver those things one of the things i'm always uh, starstruck by if i'm honest with you it's having run a design team at a big bank is the ability to actually get things in the hands of customers and and you guys at revolu can go from you know a good idea to the market in hours, weeks, you know, and that's that's amazing differentiating point back to what, what Emma was saying. I mean, how much of that is the critical piece in this is, you know, this isn't just ideas, it's execution, right? So all valid points, and I could not agree more than, uh, again, you need to build the product for your customers, you need to listen to what they say, you need to adjust based on this, keep an open mind. So again, I'm not going to repeat those uh, basics. I, I, I think there are some interesting points I could make, which at least are not as mainstream and I'm not reading them all the time. There is a big difference in how different companies see, for example, part of themselves, uh, which are responsible for like hand holding the customers, right? And offering high touch customer service, because a lot being said about engineering culture, there is a lot of inspirational stories. And again, Google, Apple, agile approaches, like there is a lot being said on that. I don't feel like I can push the limit on, on that. Uh, there is already a lot. But there is a lot less sexy and kind of less talked about part of those companies, which is in, in many cases, 90% of those companies is customer service people, right? Customer support. No one talks about them, right? They're being quietly kind of not never discussed. They're being uh, seen as and thought of as a cost, right? They're being offshored, like like uh, basically outsourced and like some crazy awful things are happening in those parts of the business. And in fact, I haven't seen open debates and some exciting discussions as much as I'm seeing about to begin, like experience, right? Like AI, something is off, like something great is happening with ChatGPT. Let's put ChatGPT in our app. But no, my, my recipe, for example, would be if you want to be catching up with uh, more agile and lean fintechs, et cetera, maybe you need to look in that part of your organization, which is again, generally not respected, right? Those people are not feeling great about those jobs. They're, they're feeling more like um, kind of easily replaceable uh, employees. Their knowledge is not being incorporated in, in products because arguably everyone talks about let's listen to our customers. Let's run crazy surveys. Let's start doing marketing and whatever. But you have thousands of people in your own company that talk to those customers every single day. 
they are free for you. They're, in most cases, they're disgruntled and quietly sitting in cubicles with all this wealth of knowledge. So part of my approach is just to unlock every bit of knowledge we have about our customer, stop seeing those teams as cost centers. In fact, see them as revenue centers, make them like the most respected part of your company and celebrate the knowledge and success that they have. That magically goes into better user experience. That's part of our magic. I hope I'm not dis disclosing any like secrets uh, that stakeholders are not going to be happy about. But uh, We'll edit it out. Don't worry. Don't panic. It's fine. It's okay. yeah, I'll be happy if more <laughs> banks start doing that because uh, that was part of revelation I, I, I figured out for myself like 10 years ago. Something that, you know, customer support is actually a revenue center, not a cost center. Like yeah. it's a huge cost component. It's billions of dollars for all the banks, like at least hundreds of millions. So it, it's natural to see, okay, how we can move this team to a lot less paid location and start hiring even more junior people to just cut the cost. That takes you to all sorts of bad decisions, right? It takes you into bad culture, bad skill sets, etc. But as you realize that, in fact, if you start doing this thing right, those customers will be excited. They will say that, you know, I had problems with my loan. The support person helped me and they helped me move it to a lot lower interest and whatever. And then ultimately your viral ratios will go up. Your brand strength will go up. And like you will see so many magic things on the positive side of your business, which is revenue going up and profitability going up that ultimately you'll be able to make good decisions. So like you asked me about digital, I kind of flipped it because I feel like there is so much being said about digital. I'm not going to be the one uh, to preach on that. There are a lot more reputable people talking about that, but I see a huge opportunity to talk about like unsexy things, which are like 90% of your organization is customer service, which knows everything about what your customers want. And if you go talk to those people, they generally feel not respected, not listened to, and generally not excited about their jobs. To me, if I want to make impact for free, like that's where I immediately go, right? Like I just want to make sure that my customer service organization is the most respected in the business, is being listened to on a day-to-day -day basis, and then I'm not wasting my marketing and, and research dollars, for example, to go directly to customers when it's too difficult, right? Not obviously not always, but when it's too difficult. But instead, yeah. I'll talk to my people. So that's that's part of a UX approach, which is free for everyone to use. 100%. Uh, I mean, if Jason Bates, co-founder of 11FS and, and co-founder of Monzo and Starling before that was here, he would echo that 100%. I don't know if I'm giving away their secret here from his perspective, but basically he talked to a big bank when they were founding Monzo uh, into letting him go and listen to calls for a, yeah. for a day. Uh, and they basically just built stuff that stopped people having to ring up. And that was it. That was like the early day of day of uh, what made Monzo successful. And and as you say, I mean, it's uh, unleash that talent. I, I imagine there's a, big, a lot of people from big banks listening to this uh, is going to go give somebody in a call center a hug later on because uh, I completely agree with you if, if you can make that happen. Rapidly running out of time here. We've had a, a great, great discussion. I mean, if we if we look maybe out of the next five years, um, how does this play out in terms of UX uh, for big tech, big banks, fintechs? What what do you think is going to be the standout thing happening in five years? Maybe Axel, if we we go with you first, I think there's uh, there's going to be more and more services where the UX principles and the start and the innovation will will start happening. Uh, as you said, um, payment and 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 payment accounts and 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 our beachhead. But I think there's there's going to be a lot of innovation in in like credit and and all of the more complex and more uh, structured type of products. Um, and and potentially Emma Emma mentioned it, but. Um, AI in term of um, um, creating better UXs, helping iterate faster the way because I think that, that I mean we didn't mention it, but one of the big advantages that, that the Revolut and we have is also 
our legacy, we don't have legacy, so we can reiterate fast mm. on. And and when we listen, we can we can fix quickly, which is something that the banks can't do. And and if we if we fix it the wrong way, we can fix it the other way uh, the day after. And and we do a lot of A/B testing and things like that. Which if we could automate all of that, which is honestly not the best usage of our software engineers. And and if if we could have AI. Uh, uh, learn automatically from from the interaction, uh, the digital interaction of our users. There's probably a, a lot of uh, a lot of interesting uh, invo- I mean, improvement that could come from there. Hundred uh, percent, Vasily. What do you reckon? Uh, five years out, where are we going to be? So five years is easier, I guess, to predict than fifty years. But unfortunately, <laughs> there is a chance you're going to check me uh, by 2028. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get you all back five years from now and just be like, man, you were way off, but. So I do see different events happening in the US and Europe. I don't know if the podcast is specific to Europe um, or, or more global, but I see, for example, in the landscape of uh, banking uh, market, uh, for example, US has just thousands and thousands of banks, right? We've seen many of them failing recently. There is lots of, uh, well, not many, in fact, very small numbers compared to just 2019. I, I thought there was like 20 failures and everyone was silent now. Suddenly, uh, three banks failing in a week and everyone is crazy about that. But I do see, like, at some point, consolidation should be happening in, in a sense that it gets easier for people to move their money out of the banks. We've seen that in Silicon Valley Bank, right? I expect that to be happening more as interest rates are going up because first, I expect some of those five years to be tough in terms of uh, uh, interest rates are being high, right? And high interest rates uh, create issues because U.S. national leverage, and sorry again for talking to you about U.S., I'll move to Europe in a second. U.S. national leverage is still like uh, more than 10x lower than the Apple's rate that was launched yesterday, which is 415, right? Which is still like lower than 5.2, I believe, uh, the rate that was set by the Fed. But the banks will not be able to sustain those rates much longer, right? So people will be moving money out, right? I'm adamant about not keeping my money even at 3%, right? I make sure that every dollar is earning 4 or 5 like the Raven banks at five. So I see this happening a lot in 23, 24, 25. I don't expect rates to go back to zero within those three years, which means I expect a lot more banks failing quietly. Like instead of just failing in a sense that being shut down by regulator, they'll be quietly merging with bigger banks. They'll be quietly kind of exiting the market, moving into it. So I definitely see this happening. I don't know if the US is gonna end up with thousand banks, 3000 banks, but I think 5,000 is just ridiculous. Um, UK, it's another interesting piece, which I, I find it astonishing about banking uh, industry overall. I thought UK, my friends told me, has like 50 meaningful banks, right? Maybe not 50, maybe more, but definitely not thousands and not even hundreds, right? Some small number. And UK is a smaller economy than the US, but not by a factor of two orders of magnitude, right? So it's roughly a couple of orders of magnitude um, smaller than the US in terms of number of banks. So I wouldn't expect huge consolidation there because that's already not too much. And again, you know better the other European markets, whether they're more like US or UK. But what I expect them to actually become a lot more thoughtful on how they move in terms of uh, improving customer experience. And I see acquisitions actually is generally a good idea because first you try it on your own, which is kind of happening now, right? They realized challengers appearing in 2010. They maybe started doing something in 2015. Maybe now they kind of about to evaluate the uh, return on those efforts and investments. And I would hope they generally consider those returns awful, right? Like they haven't delivered yet good results. Challengers are growing even faster. So that should that should trigger conversations in the boardroom. Are we going to just do the same thing second time? Or are we going to bring in the people who have done it? Um, and I hope to see again those 50 big banks in the UK acquiring someone for themselves, which means for entrepreneurs, it could be a good time to now start doing something 
there is already plenty of successful fintechs, but less than 50. I see opportunity for uh, startups. And I see opportunity for big banks to, again, to, to bring in the internal talent uh, by acquiring those companies, by making partnerships with them, and ultimately drive customer experience. So that's my uh, forecast for five years, if you will. It's not enough to materialize in five years, but uh, I, I see this starts happening. In US, I see failures yeah. definitely happening for smaller banks, uh, and I see interest rates of 0.4 not sustaining for much longer, right? It's been uh, like a 0.4 national average is just not going to exist for too long. Uh, as you say, consolidations all round in that sense, but uh, I can I can definitely agree with that. We'll definitely have you back on to see if the, all of that comes true. But uh, uh, Emma, what do you reckon? I mean, you, you touched a little bit on things like chat GPT and artificial intelligence. And I mean, a lot of what Vasily was talking about there is like still people manually having to move money around because better saving rates from these people or whatever. But, you know, in a world where algorithms are running more of financial services, then I kind of want somebody to be doing that stuff for me, really. Yeah. I, you know, I... I probably agree with a lot of what's been said, but the caveat that the U.S. is a slightly more complicated market because of the 50 states and you've got to have money transfer licenses. So I think you're right. You're going to see consolidation, but maybe not at the scale you've seen it in Europe, where there's much more free-flowing ability across borders. And, you know, in the end, payments and, and finances are still complicated and, and, and still heavily legally and government run. Um, and so I think you know, a question that I've got is how quickly the government in the U.S. and Europe catches up to what's happening, right? How quick, how, how much are they concerned at the fact that the SVB bank run happened in two days versus the last bank run that I think happened in upwards of 100 plus days by the, because it was just, it was the sheer ability to access those funds immediately. And do they actually put more sand in the gears than, than remove it? Because, it's creating, it, could it have, you know, a ripple effect? Um, so I'll be very curious to see how governments look at some of these events and take action or don't. Um, and then kind of the other theme that we're, we're starting to really think about is the fact that people are making fewer and fewer conscious decisions, just as I was talking about with, with AI. It used to be the case that every time you went to a till, you pulled out your payment method, whatever you wanted to pay with cash, card, put it on my, you know, bill. Now you're making that choice once. When you load your card into an Amazon, into, um, you know, any number of, of retailers and or, you know, utility providers. And so, and, and we're also seeing that moment of, of, of truth kind of happen at the very beginning. And so we're really talking about kind of going from two to three D to zero D <laughs> just, you don't even make a decision anymore. You're not interacting with screens. You're not interacting with anything. Um, and finance has truly disappeared. Uh, going back to where I think this group originally started, which is you don't want to be in your financial app for a long time. You know, the, the question then becomes, how does that app evolve and that interface evolve if people are making fewer conscious financial decisions? Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's fascinating. I feel like I feel like we could probably go for about another five hours on like every one of your closing statements between the two of you. But uh, and we'll definitely have to have you all back on to kind of unpack those things. But more, the thing I sort of say is like, ain't it great to work in financial services right now? Like, there's just so many amazing things happening on all fronts in all slices of financial services. There are just amazing innovations happening, and that. 
I mean, it makes it easier to get out of bed than it, for sure. <laughs> so uh, on that note, we're going to have to wrap up this edition of Fintech Insider Focus in associations with our friends from Visa. Thank you so much for joining me, panel. Uh, where can people learn a little bit more about you and your companies? Emma, starting with you. Go to Visa.com and, yeah, learn there. We're everywhere you want to be, I guess, is really the, <laughs> the gist of it. Perfect. Axel. Uh, Spender.com, and we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we are quite uh, quite present on social media. Very good. Fastly, where can people learn more? A uh, simple answer, go to Revolut.com. A little bit of funny answer, which I appreciate, as you could tell. Uh, I can put a referral link to LinkedIn, so I can make $100 of you if you join from my link. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's got that little side hustle, haven't they? Uh, <laughs> referral fees uh, for me. As for me, you can always find me lurking predominantly on LinkedIn these days. Feel free to connect. Happy to chat. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us make it better and helps other people find the show as well. For more on this discussion, look out for the next episode of Fintech Insider Focus in two weeks' time. But thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.